And welcome back, everybody, to yet another episode of the Going For Two podcast. I am your intrepid host, Matt Brown, the publisher of the Extra Points newsletter. Um, And I am joined here, as always, by my friend and colleague, Brian Fisher. Brian, before we we start talking, let me me ask you a question. Um, In your long career as a sports writer, journalist, professional and college football adjacent person, have you ever gotten in trouble by calling somebody by their first name? I will absolutely say no. I, I, I have never talked to Nick Saban personally, although I have talked to several other big time coaches within college football, commissioners, uh, you know, people at ESPN. It's never, it's never happened to me, but I'm, I'm starting to think now maybe I should be flipping out and demand people call me by something else other than Matt. Like, Newsletter writer Brown or journalist Brown seems like a really lousy honorific. I think we could do do a little bit better than like blogger or like media person, right? Like, is, is there something out there that we ought to demand people? I mean, your majesty, I guess, is still on the board. Well, I mean, if, if you want to go branding and uh, kind of increase the, the self-brand of, of extra points and all that, you could just be like, I'm MB, you know, and you just, just, or just refer to yourself as Matt, you know, kind of go one word, you know, if, if, we, if we want to kind of... <laughs> Right, right. I'm, I'm Brazilian. My people all go by one name all the time. Exactly. There, there we go. Perfect, perfect. But I am, I am the only Matt. People forget that. The only Matt Brown associated with college football. So, you know, I, I think you're in the clear there. So uh, that, that's certainly the only Matt Brown associated with college football that attended a Big Ten university. Absolutely. Um, the reason I, I bring I bring this up here, of course, and we actually had other things we wanted to talk about, but just a couple of minutes before I hopped on, on the, on this call, see that, that today, uh, this is Tuesday afternoon that we're recording SWAC media days are, are occurring. This is a uh, several college, college athletic leagues across division one are having their media days and uh, reportedly Jackson state head football coach, Dion Sanders objected to a reporter calling him Dion. He said that he wanted to be treated the same way as Nick Saban. The Nick Saban would allegedly cuss people out if you called him Nick. Um, fact checked. This is false. Um, and then walked out of media day. And if I, 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 I was seeing this just as I was walking in the door here, Brian, am I correct in believing that you think this is all a work? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and first of first of all, I've, I've ever interviewed Nick Saban a number of times over the years and continuously refer to him as Nick, as does a lot of the local media, as does a lot of the national media. So he is Nick. Uh, and, and even a lot of the local f- folks, especially even say Coach Saban. So, uh, you know, it's either kind of one or the other. Uh, so I don't I'm not exactly sure where, where Dion picked up that uh, he would get cussed out by Nick Saban if he, if he called him Nick, because he, he gets referred to that by that quite a bit. Second of all, yeah. Uh, you know, it, I, I think this is obviously a, a attention ploy shocker from from Deion Sanders. But I, I mean, look, did, did you know, you know, prior to today that this was SWAC Media Day? You know, if, if you're especially if you're not uh, following one of those institutions pretty closely, you, you had probably no idea the SWAC even had a media day uh, this year, much less one in person like this. Uh, I, I think it was probably a good reminder to a lot of folks out there as well of what school Dion even coached, you know, in, in the SWAC. So I think it's a more than anything, a, a mission accomplished for primetime himself. He, he got back into the national news. Yes, it took calling uh, a few reporters and, and storming off and, and creating this kind of tirade. But uh, I think it was absolutely all planned by, by Dion to get uh, a little bit more attention on, on his program going into uh, what, what will amount to be a very interesting full fall season for him. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I will, in my defense, I will say I did know SWAC Media Day was today, but that's probably only because I'm working on an HBCU story right now uh, that, that will have been published by the time you are listening to this, uh, this podcast. I, I, I think that is entirely possible. Lord knows uh, Mr. Sanders is, was hired because he's very good at generating publicity, uh, positive publicity, less positive publicity, all kinds of publicity. But if I was a player on, on this team, I guess, and you see now what the national media is, is, is great. Now Sanders is in, is in the news again. Um, this is anything about this team. It was not anything about any particular player or game or anything associated with the program. It's the national media is talking about my coach and calling him a dick because he was being a dick and like, I, I can understand the thought process. So like I should do this. And if everyone talking about me is still a positive thing, I don't really see how that benefits the program, especially given that like, it's not like Jackson state went nine one last year, they were a 500 team against a visual one opposition. And this roster still has some non insignificant holes on it. Like, I don't think they're going to go nine and one this fall. Well, you know, Perfectly aligned with that story kind of coming out and blowing up on social media was was Lane Kevin taking the stage at SEC Media Days. Another coach who, let's face it, years ago, frankly, kind of did some of these same antics and, and put the attention on himself to in, in, I think, Lane's mind back in the day to put the attention back on the program uh, through himself. And I think that's this is what Dion is doing. I think this is obviously something that uh, he, he thought was probably pretty calculated in terms of uh, making some some noise uh, at SWAC Media Day. And and look, listen, yeah, it, it's no doubt that uh, Dion is a very self-centered person and and he is all about prime time and uh, certainly less so than the program itself. But um, that's part of the, the issues uh, that I think Jackson State is going going to have to deal with uh, throughout the, the tenure uh, of their head coach is, is not only uh, dealing a little bit with some of these these things that kind of go outside uh, the purview of head coach and also uh, some of the self-centered nature of what you know primetime basically brings to the table. Yeah, when you are a school that is not used to being in the national spotlight or used to having a real capital C character as your head coach, your sports information staff or your internal infrastructure might not uh, have evolved enough to, to really be ready for all of that. I think we saw that a little bit with Jackson state because right. Like with Sanders first game, the storyline wasn't, Hey, he won or anything his team did. It was about this gigantic temper tantrum about being robbed when he wasn't actually robbed or maybe kind of was robbed. And that completely lost the plot of what should have been like this uh, heartwarming or interesting or engaging other you know story. And I think that spoke to, this is just a school that's not used to that kind of attention. And you bring in a guy like Deion Sanders um, and you could say, look, then this was something that was mentioned here actually at Swag Media Days. Um, there's a lot of positive things, right? They're going to be on regular linear television this year. Um, you're, you're not every single HFCS football game is going to be behind an ESPN plus paywall. You're going to be able to see SWAC football um, on your actual television set without having to log in anywhere. And there's going, there is increased uh, corporate sponsor interest in HBCUs and the SWAC specifically. That's a big positive money is always an issue at these programs. Somebody who is able to bring in extra money. That's a plus, but there is a cost. And I, I don't know. I mean, if, if if they open up two and four and, and maybe they, they uh, would have hoped for a different element of coverage there at their local newspaper, I'm willing to bet they're going to remember how this whole thing went down. 
Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, it's always kind of a, a bit of a double edged sword, you know, for a lot of these uh, schools that, that do want to bring in a big name as a, as a head coach. Well, a lot of the times those big names have uh, a bit of baggage that, that come with them. And I think Dion, in, in this case, obviously does it. He's he's got a documentary crew with around with him uh, to kind of documenting the season. That was part of this. He's got his own podcast. He's got, a, you know, really his own own media empire that is coming along in addition to the Deion Sanders that is actually coaching coaching the team itself. And so uh, it, it's going to be interesting. We, we've seen, you know, Eddie George come into uh, another similar situation with another HBCU. So uh, I, I think... And Eddie George is not going to pull something no. like this. No, but I, I think it, it goes speaks to the fact that these schools also have to understand that they, uh, with the bigger names that they think can call attention to their program, is also going to come increased scrutiny, you know, increased uh, media attention, like you mentioned. Uh, and, yeah. and you're going to have to deal with that, you know, and it, and, and a lot of some of these administrators, I mean, they, they haven't been in that position before. And so, uh, you know, you see some of that inexperience kind of showing up, uh, not just with with this Jackson State situation, but I think with with others around the country as well, when when they are put into tricky spots, uh, essentially, that they, they haven't really faced. Sometimes they make good decisions coming out of that. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just have to deal with it. And, um, you know, I think we're, we're going to kind of see that uh, more and more uh, as, as these schools kind of look to some of these bigger names uh, getting involved with their program. I feel like we know we're, we're right now. We're just starting conference media day season, which is which is sort of like the the signpost throughout the summer that um, we are, we are out of the biggest doldrums and college football season is actually coming. Practice is going to start, you know, relatively soon. And there's usually some kind of dumb story that that comes out of media days. You know, I I I know you're going to planning on going to a couple of these this year. I'm not. And it's not that I don't I think that they're worthless. It's that um, I can't expense these trips to somebody else's charge account anymore. I, this is my my small business and even 300 bucks to go to, to drive to one of these things. Um, I, I, it requires a different ROI calculation than it might be for a company that has a slightly larger bankroll. But from there's been a couple of these that have already started. The SEC's already started. The Mid-American Conference has already started. You have a couple other FCS leagues. Has there been anything that has felt especially noteworthy so far? It's, it's, it's rare that I think coaches tend to say anything especially interesting at these things. No, I mean, it's the usual stuff from the coaches. I, I think for a, a long time, you were able to get some some sort of answers, but uh, now everybody's so guarded. Everybody has enough media availability with some of their, their local beat writers that uh, a lot of the, the X's and O's and, and the roster management type questions usually are are kind of put out of the way. And so it is very, very generic, you know, and unless you are a, a rights holder, a, a TV rights holder, you really don't get anything exclusive at, at a lot of these media days, which, which kind of has uh, limited their usefulness. I think for, for a lot of folks out there, but you know, at the end of the day, I think a lot of this has to um, the, just, just having them back is, is, is a huge thing now. I mean, uh, seeing, seeing folks in person, you know, ha, you know, having uh, regular media availability over, uh, you know, in, in person and, and not over Zoom uh, is a huge thing. Um, I, I think you look at the, a lot of the um, actual stuff from the podium. That there hasn't been that much outside of what some of the commissioners have said, which we'll we'll get into in a, in a little bit. But um, honestly, the, the biggest takeaway for for me so far, and uh, as, as we approach this season, is, is it's just so nice to have some return to normalcy uh, in, in college yeah. football. And, and this is kind of the the unofficial kickoff of, of college football season. And, and it's nice to have that that semblance of, of what we had in, in 2019 and before. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. There is, I think I, it's almost become cool, I think, in my corner of the college football internet. Maybe this is true for yours as well. 
to really just crap on these events in, in, in general. And um, I understand that inclination, but I can also understand after the last year that we've had, if there's something almost romantic about going into some crappy hotel ballroom in Birmingham and talking about Dan Mullen's shoes because, or, 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 or what have you, right? Because in the, in the, in a vacuum, no, that's not especially glamorous. We, we file the copy because we have to, the, the, the internet law needs more content, but it, it's not because that isn't especially sacred or interesting in experience of itself. But if all you've been doing is doing things on zoom and you've been stuck in your basement for a while, uh, I can understand it'd be very different. Like the, the one thing that I always kind of appreciated about big 10 media days, which is usually in Chicago. And that's usually where I live is that it almost felt a little bit like the first day of school. Is it your chance to see a couple of other people that you probably didn't see very much over the summer and they're going to become more regular fixtures for your working environment during the fall? You're coming and you're talking about a new school year um, and you're seeing everybody's new backpacks or whatever. Right. Like there's 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 some kind of changing of the seasons, uh, you know romanticism it's not exactly the right word but 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 you know what i mean right like i i I can understand why so many people are going to be way more excited about more mundane experiences because we probably shouldn't take them for granted anymore you know no, absolutely not. I think that is a key point is that we, we cannot take these type of events for granted. We cannot take uh, the, uh, those fall Saturdays uh, away and, and the memories and the emotions that it, some of it brings up as well. And I think for, for a lot of folks, you know, just having that that uh, bedrock, you know, event that you can say this is kind of the, the, the turning point. Um, you know, kids are going to go be going back into school soon enough, uh, in, including yours. It's going to be a, a different fall than I think we're, we're used to. And I think in, in, in light of some of the, the recent news, you know, certainly with the, the surge of the Delta variant, uh, both the commissioners, uh, you know, Bob Bowlesby has, has mentioned this. Uh, yeah. it, it's definitely a talking point that uh, and, and really one of the probably the more newsworthy events that are coming out of these media days is is frankly, it, it's, it's important to see where these teams are with their vaccinations and, and, and because that is absolutely a relevant issue on the field. You know, it, I think we'll, we'll start to see some more formal policies uh, after these leagues have started to meet at these media days and, and had some additional conversations going into the month of August is that we will have some more concrete information on what exactly the, the formal structures of the season are, because as we mentioned with, with our last podcast, COVID's not going away and, and it's still going to affect the season and, and have an impact on it. The, the key question is, it's just how much we're, we're ultimately going to see this fall. Yeah, I, that is such an important point. And I feel like that's one of the two biggest takeaways I've had from everything here so far. That going back to normalcy and that that desire to do that does not exactly mean that we are back to complete normal. And I don't know if that win or if how that ever ends up happening here at this point. But COVID is still very much a thing. And there are vaccines available that are free. And, and you're right. I mean, if, you're, if your team's getting those shots, they don't have to face the same level of t- regular testing and potential uh, quarantining that they might otherwise. Our last podcast guest, uh, public health expert that we, uh, we will link to here in, in the show notes on Extra Points, talked about how teams and leagues and entities can do a better job of incentivizing those vaccines. I think we talked a little bit more about a carrot approach. I think what I was hearing from Bowlesby and from SEC offices and even the Mac was a little bit more of a stick. 
because last year there was a lot of flexibility with games getting moved around because everybody was being was getting exposed all the time and teams on a given week were down 20 kids all the time that's not going to be the case this year and what i'm hearing from the big schools all the way down to the smaller ones is if you have too many players and you can't meet these thresholds you're just forfeiting we're not going to build in by weeks just in case we need to rearrange games for COVID. It's your responsibility to be healthy. And uh, not everybody is in a position right now where they're not going to have to worry about that. I don't think. No, I think it's, it's going to be critical because, you know, as we've mentioned before in this, this podcast is, you know, if, if you're not vaccinated, you're going to get tested and that can obviously read, you know, lead to a lot of issues, you know, in terms of quarantine, in terms of contact tracing. Um, and, and it's already an issue, you know, we've seen at the professional level, you know, look at uh, the, the recent Yankees Red Sox series, um, a number of players, you know, were knocked out. We're, we're going to see that again this fall with, with, college football we're going to see it with the nfl and and i think for a lot of coaches you know i think they would ideally want to have the the fewest amount of distractions and and that's ultimately what getting to you know a high enough uh, percentage of their team vaccinated can lead to you know we, we kirby smart today was was very you know adamant in terms of saying it was it's going to be an advantage you know you know george is on their way um you know they're, they're past the the 80 threshold that uh, greg Sankey has mentioned and you know frankly that he he looks at it as as not just uh, uh the ability to kind of protect their season and, yeah. and protect games and, and, and having that on-field advantage. But um, he also mentioned that it's the, the right thing to do. And so I think a lot of these coaches um, see those dual purposes uh, with it. And I think it's it's going to be a continued uh, theme, I think, um, as we kind of lead into the season uh, during this this run-up. Yeah, I mean, how, we, how you pitch and talk about vaccines uh, really does seem to have to be different depending on the audience that you're talking to. And for some individuals... The, uh, the this is the right thing to do. This protects your local community. Uh, that's going to be the right approach. There's some other individuals, I would imagine, especially those who are from more rural areas where they might perceive that their COVID individual risk is going to be much lower. The only effective thing is going to be you, you got to do this and if to, to help your team, to help protect your ability to, to play and be competitive in every game. I'm hopeful that we won't see what we saw anywhere close to last year where where enough teams missed games where it would you know trying to decide who was actually good felt like a near impossibility if we're lucky only a very small number of games will be significantly impacted but um given the way that college athletes and college students live where the idea of isolation especially now that we've all kind of decided the pandemic's over uh, is is basically not going to be an option you better get that shot <laughs> because if you don't um your 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 exposure on one way or another is is going to be non trivial um there's something else that i've i've been gleaning from a couple of these other early days from comp- early 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 days here in, in media days we've seen this from the sec i think we We've seen it with the Big 12. We even saw this today with the MAC. And that is conference commissioners being, I think, uncommonly blunt with their frustrations with the NCAA. And when when Greg Sankey says it, it's, oh, my gosh, the SEC is thinking about breaking away. They're saying some of the same things here at the MAC. And I'm not necessarily sure there's any kind of like Western Michigan nationalists who want to make sure that they don't have to share anything with with Youngstown or Oakland anymore. What have you taken away from seeing multiple conference committers get up in front of a microphone and say, we're not really satisfied or we're frustrated with the way that the last year has gone? 
Well, it's about time. You know, I think that's that's the one thing that I, I can take away is, is it's about time they've gone on the record with with a lot of these criticisms. You know, let's let's face it. You know, they, they've mentioned a lot of this privately, you know, and, and you'll see it in, in stories. You see it with folks we've talked with. You know, there's a high level of frustration with the NCA and, and how things have operated, you know, especially the last you know six months or so, you know, and, and even going back to maybe the last two or three years. You know, I think there's that that frustration is now boiling over. And I, I think it's encouraging that things are coming more out in the open that commissioners and, and ADs hopefully are, are going to start attaching their names to some of this criticism as well, because frankly, it's going to be productive. It's going to help move things along. And I think as, as we'll kind of get into kind of the, the state of the NCAA right now is, um, you know, it, it's a bit precarious. Sure. Um, you know, certainly Mark Emmert's, you know, comments the last couple of weeks about maybe moving to a more decentralized model is, is going to be forthcoming, but we'll, we'll see on those fronts at, at the same time. I think the, the commissioners, especially two prominent commissioners like like John Steinbrecher out of the MAC and, and Greg Sankey, uh, who have been in, frankly involved in, in NCA governance more than pretty much any other commissioners. The fact that they're coming out and, and saying this, I, I think it is a big deal. I think it speaks to the fact that they would they would like more autonomy, uh, not only just among the, the Power Five uh, conference commissioners, but I think among major college football at, at the FBS level in particular, um, you know, they want more autonomy to make decisions quicker. See these types of public comments are, are a way to, I think, get, get to that means. The, the, the idea of decentralization being one of like the main themes for this conversation, I, I think is really fascinating. And, and I, I didn't quite have the space to make this exact argument and extra points earlier. But on many levels, I think you could credibly argue the NCAA is way too decentralized um, when it comes to trying to track which subcommittee or which group of administrators um, has the the executive authority to handle a particular thing. This conversation I had with Val Ackerman a couple of weeks ago, it still stuck with me when she was describing the the organizational structure process for the women's basketball tournament is spread out over three different committees, committees that don't always talk to each other. Some of those committees are heavily uh, full of athletic directors and conference commissioners. Some of them have university presidents. Some of them have other stakeholders. Sometimes those people live in college athletics full time. Sometimes college athletics might only make up 5, 10, 15 percent of their world if you're in higher university administration. That makes it difficult to pinpoint and say this screw up was the fault or the or of this committee or this committee shares full ownership of this thing. And that is a very effective structure if you want to spread blame around, because then, you know, the, the NCAA likes to talk about this, right? Like where, where the NCAA is its membership. And that's true. Uh, and it's hard to blame 300 different presidents and athletic directors for something. It's much easier to have one highly paid um scapegoat with a bad haircut, which is kind of what Mark Emmert is. And that's part of why he's so easy to, to dunk on. Um, but if you decentralize that, I mean, if you actually centralize some of that decision-making a little bit more, I think that that might, might improve some of the, the problems with speed for decisions. It, it's, it's interesting that when you talk to a low major conference commissioner or an athletic director, and they might complain about the outsized influence that FBS institutions or P5 institutions might have over governance or over money. And then if you talk to somebody who's only involved in the college football side, it's not uncommon to hear some of them talk about the need for a like football czar, right? Like, or a college football commissioner or the opposite of being decentralized. They want more concentrated executive authority. Um, it just speaks to how difficult it is to untangle this particular problem because there are so many different people 
uh, whose interests are tied up in the NCAA, so many different schools, and they don't have uniform interests at all. It's I, I, I'm not exactly sure of the best way to kind of untangle this knot because so many of the people involved just they're 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 not they don't have that much in common. I mean, this is the great paradox of the NCAA, right? You know, just you you do want more centralized authority and, and you do want stronger leadership. But but how, how are you going to get to that point? You know, are, are the conference commissioners really going to give up any of their power, that, especially the power that they've come to realize these last, you know, certainly during the pandemic, these last 12, 12 to 18 months, that they can do things much more on their own, that they can lead by example with just their own leagues. And, uh, you know, if, if the Big 12 and the SEC want to differ from the Pac-12 and the ACC, that that's fine. And and they can still put together a product on the field. Uh, I think it is a, a bit eye-opening for them, the, you know, what they've been able to accomplish these last couple of months. And, and I think that uh, is kind of sparking, uh, you know, increased interest in, in this NCAA reform. Speaking to Mark Emmert's, you know, decentralization comments, I think you could start to see um, an increase in the, uh, you know, maybe it's another division. You know, I think that's been talked about uh, a couple of times. You know, I think we can maybe move towards that model. Uh, you know, uh, Greg Sankey even has, has mentioned in the past, you know, kind of uh, move to what the college football playoff, you know, committee is and how they manage that entity as well. I think you can maybe see, um, you know, essentially the football itself, you know, kind of jettisoning off from the NCAA with, with all the remaining sports you know involved in even more uh centralized authority yeah i mean this is what the night commission essentially suggested last year and i can i can tell you there is definite support for literally moving fbs football into a completely different entity i know that's supported by some low major commissioners and ad's i've talked to them they told me that they i know the ncaa resents having to do the enforcement mechanisms and all of the dirty work when they don't get any of the football money that already goes somewhere else so one way that i could see this happening is we just end up with like 12 different college football playoffs where we have sports specific governance that handles the postseason events and eligibility and, and even some of the broadcasting arrangements for each individual sport. So there's a college basketball, then world and a college baseball entity and, and something else. And then the NCAA just does some baseline academic eligibility and is, is kind of like a clearinghouse is a much smaller entity that could work. The other thing that I think could happen, particularly on the Olympic sports side, is that sec- is that new division. And if, if I was understanding some of the SEC's complaints correctly, and I've heard this from a few other Power Five uh, administrative folks, is that there are some ADs and commissioners that would like to be able to offer scholarships to all Olympic sport athletes, make them all headcount sports. Alabama has the money. Ohio State has the money to put every softball player on scholarship, which would make a better, more competitive product. That is something that cannot be reconciled with the bulk of Division One, because the bulk of these smaller schools, these mid and low majors, it is critical for them that they maintain most of their Olympic sports programs on partial or no scholarship, because the reason they sponsor those is to raise money for tuition. That's why Youngstown State has 22 different sports and Clemson has 16. That's why so that's why that's why Presbyterian is in Division One. And I could see a world where then whether that's the NCAA or these confederation of other sports is sports specific league says, all right, division one softball is now 80% to hundred percent scholarship. And division two softball is now up to six scholarships. And then division three is whatever the D two line. And then down the line, we're now division four is the new division three. And so that way, if Clemson wants to have a fully scholarship, you know, operational softball program, 
that's wonderful. And then if, uh, you know, Southern Illinois Edwardsville doesn't, but they still want to maintain having some scholarships, maybe there's, there's a platform available for that. That might be kind of where these conversations go for reconfiguring governance. Does that, that, that pass the sniff test to you? It, it doesn't. And I think it's worth, you know, kind of taking a step back and, and pointing out the fact that, you know, the NCAA is, it's not just, you know, the kind of three divisions and, and how, how well they spread, spread out uh, across the country. I mean, you look at uh, how the sports themselves are, are managed, you know, it is, there's multiple committees involved. You actually have, you know, office staff and in Indianapolis uh, as part of the NCAA that are running the championships, you know, it, it is a, a very much a still a decentralized model in terms of how it's actually managed because nobody's really in charge. And, and a lot of the times it does kind of fall back to a lot of these committees that, that are tasked with, you know, oversight of men's basketball, women's basketball, whatnot. I can see that structure, uh, you know, moving to very similar to what we've seen with the, the college football playoff. And I, I think it's going to be fascinating because a lot of stuff is, is on the table. You know, I, I don't think anybody really has a good grasp of, of where we're, we're going to have to get to and, and what we're going to have to do in terms of putting the work in to, to get there. And we, we have seen some monumental changes uh, these last two years, and, and we're going to continue to see monumental changes. You are absolutely right in that I don't think there's a clubhouse favorite for what a lot of the answer, the answer to a lot of these questions is, which means um, if you are somebody that has deep thoughts about NCAA governance, um, you should sit, this, this is the time to write that column, right? Like this is something I'm going to talk about on extra points in more detail over the coming weeks, because I have thought about this and other third party organizations have reached out to me for advice, or I know that they're planning on, 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 on uh, making proposals themselves. This is not a space where the Knight Commission or the Drake group need to be the only groups that are publishing like white papers or ideas that folks are listening to. If you have some ideas, now is your chance. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the potential postseason structure changes for football, because this is the other big kind of media day thing that everyone wants to talk about. But before I get to that, I want to very quickly plug that newsletter again. If there's a you are somebody who has opinions or thinks deeply or cares about how the NCAA structures ice hockey or what, what is the correct number of scholarships that more uh, programs should actually be, be, uh, be using for their sports, which I'm guessing you do care about because you've listened for like 30 minutes into this podcast. But if you are that kind of person, you don't have to limit yourself to just one podcast a week. My friend, there's an entire newsletter that writes about this exact stuff four days a week. There's going to have original reporting. It's going to have expert analysis. It's going to have perspectives that you have been missing before, and you can get it in your inbox. It's going to make your email inbox better. Um, you can subscribe for free and get two newsletters at extrapointsmb.com. But if you want to support this newsletter, if you, want, if you want to support this podcast, you want to support what we're doing, you want to get the full experience, you can subscribe and get four newsletters. That's at extrapointsmb.com. Use promo code podcast at checkout and get 20% off of your order. You can get monthly. You can get annually. The important thing here is, though, is that you should get it because there's some there's some important stuff in this newsletter that you don't want to miss. Uh, we've got this a story here about conference realignment within the HBCU community that is uh, just dropped yesterday. We've got some more information coming out about the EA Sports video game and some of the functionality and some of the reasons it's being released when it is and what's happening behind the scenes right now. You're going to find that and you're not going to find it anywhere else at extrapointsmb.com. Brian, um, the other thing that has popped up a lot in these kind of media day conversations, and I imagine it's going to be a theme throughout this college football season, 
So what the hell we're supposed to do with the college football playoff now? Because this year it, it almost feels anticlimactic because we spent the last month talking about what it might look like at 12 teams and what it might look like with a bunch of different formats. We know that this year it's going to be four. And we know the next year it's going to be four. And beyond that, we don't really know exactly what's coming next. Have you heard anything or read anything that that's changed your mind? No, I think we're we're going to have expansion. I, I think that is kind of set in stone. I think that that we we got to make that very clear. I think we're we're going to get some more information. Uh, the the college football playoff is essentially having a meeting in September. Um, you know, and involving the commissioners, involving the presidents uh, that that make up the management committee and. You know, we're, we're going to see some more concrete actions uh, taken after that. They've been studying the issue. They've been looking at things like, you know, where, where to play the semifinal games, where to play, uh, you know, the, the quarterfinals, what the contracts look like. I, I think we're going to see some more concrete steps taken, not just at that September meeting, but over, over the uh, subsequent uh, you know weeks and months. You're going to start to see some things behind the scenes. You know, you're starting to get some uh, more concrete interest in terms of the, the media partners and, and what the, the playoff is, is not only able to do in terms of the, the contractual issues that they have to navigate, but, um, you know, what, what ESPN is thinking on the matter, what, whether they're going to, uh, you know, make a bid, you know, exclusively to, to keep the 12 teamer and, uh, inside the, the ESPN family. Uh, I think we're, we're going to start to see, certainly some, we've already seen some jockeying from the, the bulls themselves to be included with the, this 12 teamer. I think we're going to, uh, that, that's going to be a constant refrain over the, not only the media days circuit, but over the first couple of weeks of the season. And I think the, the great unknown right now is, is, is going to be, you know, left with the Rose bowl and, and yeah, you know, I think that could be a driver where we, we might get some sort of clarity uh, uh, after that September meeting in terms of what the Rosewell wants to do. It's it, it's it's a difficult thing because, you know, it's, it's unlike, you know, Las Vegas Bowl or something like that. That's owned by ESPN. That's a very much more nimble, I guess you could say, um, you know, organization and, and bowl game to where they could be a part of it. They could not. You know, it, it doesn't matter. But, you know, with the Rose Bowl in particular, yes, there there's uh, some some dug in heels and, and some reluctance to. Uh, uh, move off that traditional date uh, on, on January 1st. But um, you got to also keep in mind that the Rose Bowl itself is kind of a complicated entity. There's the city of Pasadena involved. There's the Tournament of Roses Parade. We've already saw, uh, you know, a lawsuit that came out of moving the game to Arlington last year uh, that was just recently resolved. So um, there, there's a lot going on surrounding the Rose yeah. Bowl. And this has been the sticking point that kept us from having a playoff for our entire lifetime. This is this every single stupid fight in college football is the same stupid fight we've been having for decades. This was the stick in the mud until suddenly it wasn't. And when, when they figure it out and when the right, you know, bowl executives figure out the right junkets and the right bribery you know, or whatever to go get them involved in the system. I'm sure that's when we'll have some clarity, but the fact that this hinges on the Rose bowl, um, it, it couldn't that that's the most college football possible answer right it is and i think less you know I, i've been to the rose bowl uh, you know over a dozen times it, it is a special place on, on january 1st i think everybody kind of recognizes uh, the importance that game has, has had as not only just the the first postseason bowl game but just to the, you know how, how how seminal a moment it is in, in college football history to for the amount of games the amount of players that have taken place with it and everybody recognizes that but i think especially with this this new generation kind of coming into the administrative ranks um you know there's 
there's less deference to the Rose Bowl doing whatever it wants. And so I think there's, um, you know, certainly a scenario out there where the Rose Bowl simply is, is not involved in, in the college football playoff. It's, it's, you know, maybe they might host a, a national title game at the actual Rose Bowl stadium um, as part of a national championship game. You know, that that's an o- option for them. You know, it, it's possible there's just a Big 12, Pac-12 meeting, um, you know, at the Rose Bowl on January 1st. That's outside of the college football playoff system. That's a possibility. And, and then there's kind of a, uh, another option out there on the table as well to where they are hosting semifinal games. Maybe it's in that traditional spot. Maybe it's not. Um, but I think the the flexibility the Rose Bowl will have in terms of you know, really giving into the demands of, of college football is going to be something worth tracking. It speaks to where college football is right now and this industry is right now. But the biggest sticking point to an enormous postseason expansion is not about what the players want. It's not really about it's whether you're making this even more a two semester sports or subjecting them to additional uh, you know physical turmoil without actually paying them. Um, you know, there's been some lip service you know tied to that, but there's not really any kind of entity to really force change. The biggest issue right now is over corporate sponsorships and where to play the actual football games. Uh, I, I think I may be in a minority here. I don't really have a super strong opinion about whether the games are played on campus or at the Rose Bowl or the Sugar Bowl or the Papa John's GoDaddy TaxSlayer.com Bowl in Jacksonville or whatever. I, I feel confident they're going to be played. Um I wouldn't be surprised if issues other than this end up being a bigger deal once we get later on in this process. But for right now, it's about placating the right people in the right uh, colored blazers um, to, to, to move this from a theoretical hypoth- uh, you know, uh, idea into something that actually gets pen and paper. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, the, the Cotton Bowl, the Orange Bowl, some of the other bowls that are part of the, the, the playoff system right now, they're they're along for the ride. You know, they're, they're going to do whatever it takes to not only be a part of the the 12-teamer, the you know, they're, they're going to fight for their place and, and and they'll be fine. They're, they're going to kind of go at the whims of what are the college football leaders. You know, the, the Rose Bowl in a bit of a different situation, mostly just because of, of how it's governed. You know, you have the, the Rose Bowl Stadium and, and the city of Pasadena, as I've mentioned. You have uh, what they call the tri-party agreement between the Big Ten and the Pac-12 and the Tournament of Roses in, involved in actually running the game. So there's it's just a complicated aspect. And studying that, seeing what they can actually do from a contractual issue is, is part of kind of this this process that they've had since they both announced that they were uh, had this agreement for essentially a 12-teamer to formally, formally approving it um, as possibly as, as early as September. And so um, it, it's just kind of something to kind of keep in the, in the back of your mind. Although, I, again, I, I do think there is, you know, if, if, if the college football playoff is dead set on expanding into 12, which it looks like they are. If they want to move forward, no matter what, they I think there, there's a little bit more of a comfort factor in leaving the Rose Bowl behind than there ever has been in the sports history, which I think is, is a big moment um, yeah. you know, for me, not only for the folks in Pasadena, but for the sport itself. You know, I think that this is not it's certainly a recognition uh, and, and maybe it's because of the issues that have come out of, of NIL and, and the government's uh, issues that we've been talking about on this podcast earlier with the NCA. But um, you know, just just football is, is, is evolving and, and it's growing up a little bit. It, it's taking those it's gone from from walking now it's running. We've come a long way since camel racing with the Rose Bowl. Um, it, it, you know, if there's one theme I think of this podcast and certainly of my newsletter, and I've made this joke a couple of different times because it's not really a joke and it's still apropos whenever we talk about this stuff, but the undefeated force in college sports, it's not 95 Nebraska. It's not Nick Saban. 
It's billable hours. And that's going to be the, the fun thing. Well, maybe not fun, but the thing to monitor about college football expansion and what this postseason reform is going to look like and what the NCAA is going to look like in two years. It's about lawyering, the best part of college sports, the attorneys. I, I mentioned it uh, on Twitter uh, you know, earlier in the week. I mean, just the amount of legal fees the NCAA has, has had to you know, pay out these last couple of years. I mean, I, I think uh, Steve Berkowitz at, at USA Today had over $250 million over the last six years. and That's like an entire Texas. That's a Texas athletic department. Do you realize how many fired coaches that could pay for? Several. That's several Tom Harmons right there in legal fees. And the board just gave the architect of that strategy uh, a one-year contract extension. So um, that kind of tells you where where they're at. But, uh, I mean, I think it's – you know, the, the influx of college football money, and, and we've mentioned it before on the show, is how is that going to get filtered down? You know, not just to the Power Five leagues and, and even the American, the Mountain West, the, the others that might have sent a team to the actual playoff itself. But, you know, what, what's going to happen to the rest of Division One? Um, you know, will there be a league coming up from the FCS ranks, um, you know, and, and moving up into the FBS ranks to not only become a leagues potential leagues um not only to become a part of that playoff discussion even if on the fringes but also maybe get a a couple extra million dollars from the process you know i think it it goes without saying that uh, the college football playoff itself does send some money uh and it filters down into quote unquote the kind of the grassroots of the sport to where um you know not only fcs but others you know split a couple million dollars you know if, if that's suddenly going from splitting a couple million dollars to splitting $20 million, um, you know, that, that could change the outlook for, for a lot of leagues. And I think that's uh, another great unknown that I think the college football playoff entity itself is still kind of studying and looking at. We'll see if we get any clarity about any of this stuff before the actual season starts. Um, what we're going to do here with these next couple of episodes is we're going to reach out to some experts that know some of these larger conferences really well. Um, because this isn't a, a podcast that just covers college football. I don't want to say that we're getting into a college football preview series of podcasts. Uh, we might talk about standings or depth charts, but we're not going to sit down here and really like break down who's going to finish third in the ACC. But we are going to talk about the state of some of those leagues from a more holistic perspective, as well as some of the largest group of five or FCS conferences uh, as we head into the season, not just what they look like on the football field, but as holistic athletic entities, as media entities, um, their their place in the kind of structural pecking order. And that's what we're going to we're going to be excited to talk about that here over the next couple of weeks. Uh, Brian, I know you're super busy, but real quick, where else can the Internet find you and what else you're up to? Well, the best place always on Twitter, Brian D. Fisher, B-R-Y-A-N-D-F-I-S-C-H-E-R. Tons of media day coverage. Uh, we'll be out at a couple of events as well. And so it's, uh, it's that time of year. You know, football starting. We'll, we'll have college basketball uh, right around the corner. And so it's uh, it, it's exciting because uh, optimism is, is running free. And uh, we, we also have the the possibility of uh, return to return to normalcy, you know, kind of across the country with seeing some regular regular season games that we we really have anticipated for a long time now. I cannot wait to turn on my TV on a random Thursday in the fall and become extremely emotionally invested for about 90 minutes in a Sunbelt or American athletic program that I don't typically follow um, because that will make that, that will really, I, I didn't feel that at all last year. And that will help me feel like things are getting back to normal a little bit. Um, I, would encourage all of you to still enjoy the rest of your summer. <laughs> like I, I know it's great. College football is coming back. College soccer is coming back and everything. Um, also still enjoy going outside, which is what I will also be doing over the next couple of weeks. You can find me at Matt Brown EP. You can find extra points at extrapointsmb.com. Use promo code podcast, save a couple of bucks, help support what we're doing here. In the meantime, I'm Matt. 
That's Brian. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing the podcast. We'll get back in touch with you soon. Bye.